0: You're listening to the 66, a podcast where we survey the books of the Bible, one Bible at a time. I'm Drew Kaiser, and with me is my friend and cohort, Andrew Kingsley. And we are excited huh? again. Yeah, I don't know what that means, I but about that's to say what co-host? you are. Co host or co-worker? cohort? Cohort's a little more incognito, you know, a little. Okay, lost it, me. It, 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 it will draw the listeners in. Got it and we desperately need something like that. Uh are exci- what I was trying to say when Andrew took us into a vocabulary lesson is that we are really excited to do a new book starting today, the book of Ezekiel, one of the major prophets, a uh, very difficult book to to work through, I would say, a challenge should maybe be the better word. Yeah. A lot of symbols a lot of things that you'll be surprised to find linked to other more familiar books in the Bible and uh, a book that is set in a very specific time in Jewish history Uh, so Ezekiel was one of the captives that Babylon took from Jerusalem in the second phase of the captivity and if you haven't heard this before maybe I should go over this for our listeners whenever Babylon destroyed Jerusalem and Judah in in a more general sense it didn't just do it all on one day there were three phases beginning in about 605 BC and then uh, the second one was uh, about 597 BC and that's the one where they took a lot of the elites a lot of the priesthood a lot of the leaders of the city and the skilled artisans and so forth Uh, they removed them out and Ezekiel was taken at that time the third and final phase of the captivity was the destruction of the temple and the city of Jerusalem proper in 586 B.C. So we haven't quite got to that point yet when we look at the book of Ezekiel. The book of Ezekiel takes place in captivity, so don't think of him being in Jerusalem or in Israel, but he's far away from that in Babylon who oppressed Israel Mm -hmm. and eventually came to destroy the temple, a major event in Jewish history. Uh, So that's the background of the book, and uh, I'm going to let Andrew take over from here and give us our reading, and and you're going to try to do the first three chapters, right? Yeah. That's what you hope to do.
1: Yeah, emphasis on the hope there. Um, The background that you just mentioned uh, is set up right here at the very beginning of the book. In chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, he gives us the year that this uh, occurs. He calls it the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiachin. Uh, we know that Zedekiah was the king over Judah at this time. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that Ezekiel recognizes Jehoiachin is still a king. Even ah. though he's been in exile for five years. So, ah, that's interesting. Yeah. There's, well, we can what talk. about that
0: 30th year, though? What is that? Very first in the 30th year. Was that um, when Ezekiel was thirty years old? Well, thirtieth year of the captivity. What does that mean?
1: Well, this is when Ezekiel turns thirty. Okay, uh, so he is happy birthday. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So happy birthday At to, some to point, Ezekiel. Okay, uh, verse three, the word of the Lord comes to Ezekiel the priest. He's the son of a man named Boozie. Um, something interesting about that: these young men would enter the priesthood. When they were 30 years old. So it's interesting. If we do the math, and I guess to save our listeners some time, Ezekiel is, he turns 30 years old in this year. So Ezekiel, being, he has been exiled from Jerusalem now for about five years. Uh, He was exiled when he was 25. And now, and he was exiled, like you mentioned, with those 10,000 other captives. Uh, He turns 30 here. And at age 30 was when the young men would enter into temple service. Ezekiel doesn't have the temple. So he can't enter into temple service like he would have expected to do, like all the priests would have. He spent
0: his whole life training for that. And he didn't get to do it.
1: So he is called to serve God here, but it's not in the capacity of a priest. He's called to serve in a different role, and that is the role of a prophet. Uh, So at the beginning, he is standing with the exiles by this river. We don't know exactly where that was. In verse 1, he is among the exiles by the Kibar Canal. Uh, The heavens opened and he saw visions of God. Somewhere in Babylon, probably about 50 miles outside of Babylon, some of the best guesses out there, out of the city of Babylon proper. Um, Just to give you a little idea of what we're going to be looking at in Ezekiel, Here's a quick summary of the book. There's three main parts. The first part is going to be the judgment on Judah. So you're going to have that expressed in symbols. You're going to have that expressed in parables. And that's going to be expressed in illustrations as well. Then in the second section of the book, he's going to mention the judgment on the surrounding nations. Uh, That's going to include a list of nations in chapters 25 to 27. Specifically, he's going to spend a lot of time on Tyre and Egypt. Egypt gets three chapters in the book, uh, three whole chapters devoted to what's going on with Egypt or what will happen with Egypt. And then finally, uh, from chapter 33 to the end of the book, which is chapter 48, so it's a long book of prophecy, this section is about Israel's redemption, so the new life that's to come. And we're going to break that up into three sections, the new shepherd, the new life, and the new temple. Hmm. There's Well, a- you
0: know, Ezekiel is so hard to understand, but... You know, having been through Jeremiah together, we're kind of appreciative of his organizational skills. Because this is the, as far as I can tell, the most highly structured major prophet that we're going to encounter. Those three sections are very clear. Mm -hmm. You can just look at the headings in your Bible to see that. Not only that, they're in logical order. First, God punishes Judah, his people. That's where Jerusalem is. And then he punishes the people that he used to punish Judah. In essence, removing them out of the way so they can get to the third part, which is to redeem them yeah. and send the remnant back home to rebuild. Mm-hmm. So it's just one, two, three. When you look at it from a bird's eye view, it just comes into... Yeah, in the, it makes know, it, it a looks, little
1: less intimidating to start studying, I guess. Because yeah. Jeremiah, like you said, when you look at a prophecy like that, it's it's very intimidating to get into because it does not outline that neatly. Yeah, uh, just Isaiah to also. Yeah, that's right. Very
0: fragmented. And then when you get to Daniel, Daniel is in halves. We've done that book too. Mm-hmm. Why do we do so many major prophets here? We We've Maybe only, we're hoping that when we're on the home we stretch will do be,
1: we'll be done with major prophets. Yeah.
0: that's well, if we ever get through Ezekiel. But, <laughs> yeah, that's true. You know, so Daniel's like, you know, first 6 chap or is it 6? Yeah, first 6 chapters percent, narrative. Yeah. Last Last chapters the completely visions. hard to understand, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, visions.
1: So, anyways, speaking of visions, yeah. segue. We're going to get into the first vision of Ezekiel. There's three main visions in the book of Ezekiel, and in all three of these visions, there is a recurring scene. I guess is the best way to put it. Hmm. Um, so, right here in this first part, in the first three chapters, you have that first vision. And this is going to serve as Ezekiel's call. So keep in mind, we'll come back to this just to get the scene in our minds. Ezekiel's been exiled from Jerusalem for about five years. He turns 30. He's supposed to be entering temple service, but he can't. But God comes to him, and he sees visions of the Lord, as he says in verse 1. So here's what he sees. He sees a storm in verse 4. I looked, and behold, a mighty storm came up out of the north, and a great cloud with brightness around it and fire flashing forth continually, and in the midst of the fire, as it were, gleaming metal. So he sees this, in I guess, powerful, terrifying-looking storm coming his way. Lightning flashing all around it. It's got bright light all around this cloud, um, and he's going to see some living creatures. He's going to see four living creatures, and we call it that because there's not really a better term. <laughs> to describe what these things right. are. They're identified as the cherubim in chapter 10. That's something I'm sure our listeners are most likely familiar with. They're mentioned in Revelation. They're these kind of angelic beings. Um, well, or,
0: and closer to this uh, text, they were on either side of the, the lid of the Ark of the Covenant called the mercy seat. Right. Those are cherubim as well, right?
1: Mm-hmm, but I think those... Cherubim might be a little different. Uh, Let me go through some of these descriptive factors and you can tell me if they're the same or different or not. Um, So they have a human likeness in verse 5. It says they look kind of like humans. In as much as they have arms, they have legs, and they stand upright. You can see that in verse 7. So they have four faces. Verse 6 says that each had four faces and each of them had four wings, and when we get down to verse 10, it describes those four faces. Um, each had a human face. The four had the face of a lion on the right side, the face of an ox on the left side, and the face of an eagle. So you have a lion, an ox, and an eagle, and a human face. Um, four sides. What these represent, I guess, well, should we mention these in the next section, Drew, or do you want do you want to cover some mm, of these now?
0: Maybe we should just get the, the basic you know, picture of the vision in the first section and then try to interpret it. Yeah, we'll try to make
1: it make sense when we come back. Uh, So they have four faces, a man, a lion, an ox, and an eagle. They also have four wings uh, that make the sound of the ocean when -hmm. they move. That's in verse 23 and 24. And they have under those wings, they have two human arms. That's in verse 8. They also have two legs. And they have feet like calves. Uh, verse 7 says, Their legs were straight, and the soles of their feet were like the soles of a calf's foot. And they sparkled like um, they sparkled like burnished bronze. So some really interesting-looking <laughs> yeah. creatures here. Uh, I know there's probably a lot of confusion and questions here, but we'll come back to that in the next section. So he sees these creatures. The next thing that he sees are these wheels. In verse 15, As I looked... At the living creatures, I saw a wheel on the earth beside the living creatures, one for each of the four of them. So there are these four wheels. Um, And you're going to see in verse 17 that it's really a wheel within another wheel. Mm -hmm. Not like a target to where you have like a wheel lying down on top of another one, but perpendicular. So So that they don't
0: turn. They can go, so they can verse go in verse 17 in any direction. Says, Yeah, they go in they go in any of their four directions without turning. Right. So you so got one
1: get... wheel facing straight on at you and then the other wheel perpendicular to your line of sight. So they make an X if you're looking down on yeah. top
0: of them. And that means something.
1: It does right. mean something. Yeah. I'm going to save it for the okay, next good. section. Okay, good. I'm glad meter. you know. They're also covered in eyes. You can tell. I don't I know, know what that. that means. You can know what that means. Knowledge, right? Knowledge, okay. Eyes are always
0: connected to to knowledge. So these are smart wheels.
1: Tech, like smart objects that we have. <laughs> uh, we not can hot cut hot that wheels. part out. That's not yeah. a joke. <laughs> we need a laugh track bad. Yeah. So they're covered in eyes. Um, another interesting thing about these wheels, they move in tandem with those cherubim. Mm-hmm. So if the cherubim move, the wheels move with them. They're kind of attached, tethered together. It says they move with the same spirit. Mm -hmm. So the same thing controls both of them. Confused yet? Probably. If not, you're about to be. The next thing that he sees is this great expanse, and that's in verses 22 to 25. Uh, A few things to note about this expanse. Uh, It's a firm surface. It's described as gleaming like crystal. And it hangs over the heads of these creatures and the wheels. And it moves with the wheels and the creatures. So kind of almost picture uh, this slab of something that is gleaming like crystal. And it rests on these wheels and there are these creatures with it. Now on that expanse, in verse 26, he is going to see a throne. Technically he's going to see the likeness. Of a throne. So something like a throne. For some reason, he doesn't say it is a throne 100%. It just looks like a throne. Now, on this throne, he's going to see the likeness of a man. And by the way, the throne looks like uh, sapphire in verse 26. In verse 27, he's going to see the appearance of a man, and upward um, from his waist, he had the appearance of gleaming metal like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward, from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw as if it were the appearance of fire and the brightness around him. So you have this fiery man sitting on the throne who, from the waist up, I guess looks more like a solid, and then from the waist down looks more like just fire. Mm -hmm. Um, And that is what Ezekiel sees. And behind this throne there is... A rainbow around the throne, or the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain. So that is the gist of what he sees to start with, and that covers the end of chapter one. Now, when we get into chapter two, this figure sitting upon the throne is going to call out to Ezekiel. Uh, If you'll notice in chapter two and verse one, he says this. He said to me, Son of man, stand on your feet, and I will speak with you. Something that you're going to notice throughout Ezekiel over and over again is almost every single time God addresses Ezekiel, he's going to call him the Son of man. Ezekiel is called the Son of man 93 times in this book. Obvious parallel to Christ there. And we'll come back and we'll discuss that as we continue on, uh, the parallels between Christ and Ezekiel. Uh, But he's basically going to call Ezekiel to do this. In verse 3, Son of man, I send you to the people of Israel, to the nation of rebels who have rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. The descendants are also impudent and stubborn. I send you to them, and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord God. And whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house, They will know that a prophet has been among them. So he's going to send them out among these people. And in verse 8, Ezekiel is required to do something within this vision that really drives the point home that God's word now dwells within Ezekiel. But you, son of man, hear what I say to you. Be not rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give to you. And when I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it. And he spread it before me, and it had the writing on the front and on the back, and there were written on it words of lamentation and mourning and woe. And he said to me, Son of man, eat whatever you find here, eat this scroll, and go and speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he gave me this scroll to eat. And he said to me, Son of man, feed your belly with the scroll that I give to you. Then I ate it. And it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. So this kind of concludes the vision here. When we get to verse 12, the Spirit lifts him up. He hears the voice of a great earthquake, which is going to be the voice of those living creatures shouting out, Blessed be the glory of the Lord from its place. It was the sound of the wings of the living creatures as they touched one another. Verse 14, the Spirit lifted me up and took me away. And I went in the bitterness and the heat of my spirit. The hand of the Lord was strong upon me. And I came to the exiles at Tel Aviv, who were dwelling by the Kibar Canal. And I sat where they were dwelling, and I sat there among them seven days. I sat there overwhelmed among mm-hmm. them for seven days. So that is the gist of the vision that he sees. In the short notes, he sees the glory of God, and it's depicted to him in that strange way or strange to us anyway, and then from that throne, the the likeness of God calls out to him, requires him to eat this scroll that has the words of God on it, mm-hmm. so now Ezekiel has the word of God in him, and he is called to go and deliver it, and when we get to verse 16 of chapter 3, we get a little bit of Ezekiel's job description. So seven days later, after this initial vision, God's going to come back to him and give him the job description a little bit further. Verse 18, he tells him, or really from verses 18 to 21, he's going to tell him this. If I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way in order to save his life, that wicked person shall die for his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. Then he goes on to say if there's an evil person that you do warn and he doesn't repent, he will die, but you will be saved because you warned him. So he gives him a lot of responsibility that we will discuss more later. But Ezekiel is called to basically be responsible for giving the people this warning that could potentially change what they're doing. And he even goes further to say if there's a righteous person and you don't warn him of what's coming. And he turns to evil. He will die for his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. So even if the righteous turn, it's basically the the responsibility is going to fall back on Ezekiel. Then at the beginning of chapter 4 is when Ezekiel's prophecy really begins. And it begins through some of the symbols. So that's kind of an attempt at a short version of the first three chapters.
0: Yeah, pretty good. I can't wait to get into the meaning of it. So, after the break.
1: Okay, so we have a lot to think about. And what we want to dive into to start with is this vision of the glory of the Lord. We should probably pause here and note the nature of this vision. This vision was meant to symbolize spiritual things in such a way that Ezekiel could understand. And if you're confused by these symbols that Ezekiel saw, that's most likely because you're not a Jewish person living in 593 B.C. In Babylon. In Babylon, right. Right,
0: because, you know, I I know somebody probably was listening to you talk about this was written so that we could understand, and they're like, no, (laughs) I don't understand. One thing that will help you through the frustration that you might be feeling in trying to understand this book is to know that Ezekiel is using a language that most of us know only partially and to the degree that we understand apocalyptic literature in the Bible. And then a lot of it comes from literature that none of us has been introduced to. yeah um, Babylonian literature, Akkadian literature, Jewish literature outside the Bible. Mm. There's a lot of stuff they were ingesting voluntarily, involuntarily, that puts together this language that is being spoken in pictures in the book of e- Ezekiel. Ezekiel is usually referred to as the painter of the mi- major mm-hmm. prophets. You know, if um, Isaiah is the poet, then Ezekiel is the painter. Yeah. I don't know Jeremiah is. He's the, the hammer. I don't, I don't know. Sure. <laughs> He's a preacher, I think I've heard it this said. He's weeping prophet. But, uh, you know... Uh, don't get frustrated because you don't know this language, especially if this is yeah. the first time you've tried to delve into the Book of Ezekiel. I'll be honest, there's a lot of this that that I don't know, but I have this trust that this is a real. This isn't just insane babbling. This is a real language that he's speaking here. Yeah. And and you know, if you want to learn it, then dig into the history books and find out what kind of stuff the people were reading back in those days Mm -hmm. that relates to this. A lot of it does.
1: Right. I think you can go through each one of those things that uh, Ezekiel saw, and you can definitely find the symbolism behind it. You know, whether or not that symbol means the same thing Mm -hmm. to us is a different story. But... Yeah, I mean, even starting with that storm. Right, I wanted to start there because that's
0: something I think our listeners are familiar with if they'll just think back. Yeah. Go ahead and what you were going Uh, to say.
1: So when he sees this storm, so imagine that if you have this vision and you see some kind of electrical storm with a bright light behind it and something in the middle of it gleaming like metal. I mean, it's going to... I mean, if you're just standing outside and you see a black cloud coming up on the horizon a lot of times you get that feeling in your gut of like, uh-oh, you know, mm-hmm. I hope this isn't bad. And even today with our modern, you know, we can monitor the weather. We understand some of the weather pa- weather patterns and know why things occur. And science has come a long way since the point of this vision. Mm-hmm. So as intimidating as weather can be to us now, I imagine it was more intimidating for to live way back when when you don't, I mean, at least have the comforts of having a weather forecast. Right. And it's someone like an can inexplicable
0: power of nature. Right. That make, you know, when I was a kid, that I'll be honest, growing up in Texas when I was a kid, the most often that I thought about God and prayed to God was during storms. Mm-hmm. You know, I, they, there were huge rainstorms that come up, lots of thunder and, yeah. you know, Little kids hear that, and they get afraid because they don't understand what that loud noise is. They know it it is far beyond anything they are able to create or their parents are able to create. Mm -hmm. And that majesty and fear that comes from that image makes them think about God. Yeah. And please, please don't strike my house, you know. (laughs) But, uh, you know, another thing about this cloud that all of our listeners are probably familiar with, what did God lead the Israelites through the wilderness with? Oh, right. A pillar of -hmm. a cloud. What descended on Mount Sinai when the law was being given? Lightning and a cloud. What descended on the tabernacle when Moses went in to meet with the Lord? A cloud. So the people this book was written to are very familiar with that. This Mm -hmm. is something they taught their kids when they rose up, when they sat down, when they walked by the way, when they Mm -hmm. reclined at their house. And, you know, automatically they're looking at this thinking, okay, God's here, what else? Yeah. And it's it's a simple thing. It's the image that indicates God.
1: Right. Yeah, that's really good to bring out. I'm glad you brought up those other occurrences of the cloud coming in. Um, so, accompanying this cloud, we have these living creatures, and I think the idea behind these living creatures is to represent the sovereignty of God, or that God has rule over all creation. Now, there's a lot of ideas of what these four faces represent, um, and there's you know there's almost just as many opinions as there are books, but. They likely represent altogether God's dominion over creation. So maybe uh, the man represents logic. Uh, the lion would represent um, majesty and rule. The ox would represent strength and labor. And the eagle would represent swiftness. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's also an idea that these could represent the greatest of different like categories of creation. Mm -hmm. So the man is the greatest of the intelligent beings. The ox is the greatest of the domesticated animals. The lion is the greatest of the wild animals. And the eagle is the greatest of the birds of the air. Mm -hmm. So that's to say God has dominion over all of those things. Now whether or not... We don't know exactly what it... Yeah, we we don't know exactly because if we try to make it those four things and say that's exactly what it represents. Then we run into the problem of, well, what about the greatest sea creature? Where's the yeah. face for the greatest sea creature, you know? Or and where's I, the and, face for these other attributes? And I
0: think a cheetah is swifter than an eagle. You know, yeah. people could say, well, I wouldn't have been... Mm. First of all, these are all animals that a Jewish person would have encountered. So that's they're, true. they're not going to put a gorilla in there mm-hmm. or a buffalo, Yeah. you know? Uh, these are things that they've seen Andrew's <laughs> smiling just, over there but I'm just, I'm just trying to get people to think put themselves it, in the shoes of the captives on the Kebar Canal because that's yeah. who this
1: was originally for this would have definitely shown them that God is above as amazing and as, and as capable as these creatures are God is even above them and it yeah. could even be a shot at paganism because paganism had, you know, yeah. I, don't, well, I don't know.
0: Well, I, I also want to turn back to something you said in the reading when you said, uh, is it in chapter 10 that these creatures are referred to as cherubim? Right. Okay. How many cherubim were at the temple? Careful. Um, there were four. Okay. At the
1: temple. I was about to say two.
0: Originally, there were two in the tabernacle, the ones that were referred to in the first segment on either yeah. side of the mercy seat. But Solomon Solomon constructed Cherubim to stand at the gate going into the temple um, mm, on the yeah. porch there. Now, that was not in the tabernacle, right. but in the temple that these people remember. I guess it was still standing at this point. And it would be destroyed during be Ezekiel's destroyed, lifetime, right?
1: Yeah, not not too far off. But right now, you know, so
0: for, where have they encountered four Cherubim? The temple in Jerusalem, Solomon's temple. Yeah. Um, of course, the number four also often indicates earth and created beings. You see that a lot. Uh, there are four living creatures in the Book of Revelation. Um, so maybe it has, you know, it's emphasizing creation. Maybe it's emphasizing the temple. You know, God's presence is here, and at the temple where God's presence was, there were four cherubim in the Garden of Eden. Right. What guarded the Garden of Eden to make sure that man could not get within God's presence ever Mm -hmm. again or not anytime soon? Cherubim, I think only two in that case. You don't see cherubim that often, but every time you see them, correct me if I'm wrong, you see them in the presence of God. So these are very interesting, very perplexing, but the bottom line is God is coming to speak to Ezekiel And there can be no doubt about that. This is coming from God.
1: Yeah, I think that's the point. These are things that were recognized to be a part of the presence of God. And that's exactly what this vision is about. Here at the first part is about Ezekiel seeing, and Drew, you pointed this out in the break in the final verse of chapter 1, the likeness of the glory of God. Yeah, he interprets
0: it it. for us at the end of chapter 1. At the very end he says... That the, what it is is the glory of the Lord, a likeness or a picture, painting, image, vision, mm-hmm. whatever, of the liken- of the glory of the Lord.
1: And what that means is this is not necessarily Ezekiel getting like a, uh, for lack of a better term, a scientific representation of yeah. what the glory of the Lord looks like.
0: No, nah, that's not the language he's speaking right now. Right.
1: This is all symbolic It is shown to him in a way that he can begin, just barely begin to grasp the magnitude of the glory of God. Mm -hmm. So it is, um, it's a spiritual truth revealed to him, basically trying to explain spiritual things in a physical, terrestrial way Mm -hmm. is what's happening here. So all these figures are going to be um, of this nature. So let's get to the wheels a little bit. You already mentioned in the first section that the eyes represent wisdom. The (laughs) wheels probably represent um, God's omnipresence, his ability to move. Now, in chapter 10, when the second vision happens, the second vision starts in chapter 10. The first thing that Ezekiel is going to see, he's going to see again this picture of the glory of God. So kind of this you know, the slab with the wheels on it, with the creatures underneath it, with the man on the throne on top. Mm -hmm. And what happens is those wheels start rolling, Mm -hmm. and it moves away. It's sitting on Jerusalem. So, like you said, the temple. This would be recognized with the temple, the presence of God. And that second vision sits on Jerusalem, and it leaves. And Mm -hmm. the rest of that vision is about how the inhabitants of Jerusalem are going to be punished. And what's going to happen to the city of Jerusalem? So he sees the city of Jerusalem destroyed. Yeah. But is it it not also
0: a message to... And I may be reading too much into this. But his leaving Jerusalem, is that not a message to those in captivity on the Kebar Canal? That God is with them. That he can move. That he can be with them. Right. Even though I'm sure if you've grown up all your life saying, I can only be in God's presence... If I'm at the temple, and this is a message: is Hey, the God can move around. Yeah, He can be everywhere, and He can be with you. Yeah, even though you're not in Jerusalem.
1: That's a really good point. Uh, I do think it emphasizes that exact fact that God can be anywhere. God, this is one of the
0: things Ezekiel wanted to reassure the people with him. Right. Is that God God's with us. He has not forgotten about you. He's planning to bring a remnant back.
1: Yes, and while there are less chapters devoted to that remnant that's coming back, a much greater portion of Ezekiel's life was spent prophesying for hope, uh, prophesying about the good that was coming. So he doesn't have very long to prophesy about the destruction that's coming because we're only six years away from what's coming. And we know that Ezekiel prophesies for at least 20 years. Mm-hmm. So for six years, he has six years to prophesy about the siege and the destruction of Jerusalem. And then for the remaining years of his life, or that for the remaining years that he prophesied, which is at least 14, he prophesies about the hope that is to come. Mm-hmm. So That's a good point. Uh, he does spend a lot of emphasis on that. Uh, that's a great point to make. So that kind of explains the wheels for us. Well, the also,
0: I, I read about Babylonian art in which deities are described oh, as yeah, yeah. sitting on a chariot throne. So a chariot throne was a thing in Babylon. Chariots have wheels. Mm-hmm. And so this the wheel thing, to me, has always been really strange and indecipherable, especially yeah. when they start wheels within wheels and all of that. I've just always scratched my head, you know. What do these wheels mean? And I think the the movement of God, His omnipresence, is. A, I, I think that's included, but I also mm-hmm. think it just adds to the majesty of who this is on the wheels. Mm-hmm. Um, this is God on His throne, and in Babylonian ideas, it would be, you know, a chariot throne. If you yeah, just you know, we usually p- picture. If I don't even know if. English kings sat on actual thrones, but when we hear throne, we think of the stationary chair in that's one room, big yeah. in a in a throne room. Where does that come from? That comes somewhere in our heritage that we have mm-hmm. of the king of England. But that doesn't mean that every king all over the world sat in the same kind of special chair. Mm-hmm. And evidently, the Babylonians had this, you know, chariot throne idea or trope yeah. that. Communicated something to the people of Israel at this time, mm-hmm. but I know we need we got to get over to the, some other things. Well, um, let's.
1: Uh, well, we can go ahead. Uh, well, I guess we need to talk about it now. Uh, but what the throne itself represents, it probably indicates the authority of God. Yeah, because yeah, most I, definitely. I don't yeah. think the the idea behind the throne. That's something we can understand. I don't. Mm-hmm. I don't. As odd as it sounds, over the last. Thou, you know, for the last several thousand years, the throne has meant the exact same thing, right, to all people, uh, which is interesting in and of itself. But the throne, you see, the throne, you think of this guy's in charge, mm-hmm. so God's in charge. Um, now, the likeness of him, the man being on fire, uh, there's a little less certainty, I guess, on what this could represent. Most, uh, most likely, though, I think this represents the splendor and the majesty of god mm-hmm. and something maybe a fire i guess especially for the people at this time even more so now fires this great force that's uncontrollable mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. it cannot be yeah. brought under once it gets loose it can't be brought under subjugation very easily mm-hmm. so i think there's something main to that source here. of light
0: in those days mm-hmm. the incandescent light bulb is a few years away yeah just a few. So, so, how did they see at night? They were illuminated by fire. Mm-hmm. How did God lead the people of Israel through the wilderness at night? A pillar of fire. So, we've already mm-hmm. had the pillar of smoke or the cloud, and now we've got that which illuminates the fire. But I think, you know, the splendor and the glory mm-hmm. is enhanced by that, that idea, yeah. that picture.
1: One last little thing on this image of the glory of God. There's a rainbow behind the mm-hmm. throne. And I, it's interesting. I thought you were going to start singing the song. <laughs> no, there's a rainbow. Verse 28. Yeah, you don't want me singing. That's what starts to happen. Like the appearance of the bow that's in the cloud on the day of rain. That's mm-hmm. Number one, that's what I'm going to start referring to rainbows as. The bow? The, the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain. Um, yeah, because
0: you got rain, you got
1: bow, but there's yeah. a lot of. But it's stuff the bow that's in, in the cloud on the day of rain. Yeah. Um, but the reason I bring this up, I wonder if that's there to remind Ezekiel of God's promise to Noah. Mm-hmm. I wonder if that's there to represent hope. It could be coincidental. It could mean something else.
0: I don't, I don't think there are many coincidences Right,
1: here. that's what I was about to say. But it seems to be, since Ezekiel has such a strong message of hope you know, coming to the people... Uh, I do think that this rainbow here probably uh, represents the grace, the mercy of God, God's covenant with his people. God's mm-hmm. going to restore his people and never again, you know will mm-hmm. um, destroy the earth by water right. So um, and I think that gets that gets me through some of the think ideas on that vision.
0: Well, let me throw a couple more in. We just got okay. a couple of minutes and then we need to to move on to the next segment. Uh, I love the scroll in chapter 2 and chapter Mm -hmm. 3, and the idea of um, Ezekiel eating the scroll. Uh, That is an easier symbol, I think, for people to understand. The scroll, of course, is the Word of God. And how does Ezekiel get the Word of God? He's not going to, not through any effort of his own, not through discovering it, not by finding it, not through Mm -hmm. learning it or imagining it. It has to come, it has to be outsourced. In revelation from God, and then he has to digest it. He has to make it a part of who he is and carry it in his person because God has always wanted to communicate through his people instead of just zapping the minds of people or magically implanting truth in them. He's yeah. always wanted it delivered by a human being. And so he is revealing it's it's a beautiful picture of revelation. Mm-hmm. Eat this scroll. And he ate it, and it was sweet as honey. Yeah. Uh, Son of man. Do we need to handle that right now? Um, That was
1: the last one I was thinking of. There is some really good... Well, there's more application of Ezekiel to Christ in chapter 4. So when we get into one of those symbols... Okay. uh, So we could... You want to say I guess a little bit on the son of man now. Ezekiel will serve as a shadow of Christ in some ways mm-hmm. uh, the shadow being you know when if you're standing outside in the sun your shadow is kind of the faint outline of the actual substance so when I say that Ezekiel is going to be a shadow of Christ I'm not saying you know I'm not putting Ezekiel on a on a plane of the of Christ yeah but he is going to be a faint outline of what Christ is going to come later and do. That's a term that is used several times most often by John, right? The son of man. Actually, Luke. Luke. yeah, think. that's right. Yeah. Oh, man, the Ark Bible Hour kids are going to get me for that because <laughs> that's our that's our tagline in the book of Luke. Um, yeah. But he's called often the son of man, uh, and the people would have known that. The Jewish people mm-hmm. would have recognized that title. Because it means human. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's uh, just like Barnabas, son of encouragement, meant he was encouraging. Mm -hmm. And Judas, the son of destruction, John 17, means that Judas was a destroyer. Mm -hmm. So when he refers to Ezekiel as son of man, he means human who can sympathize with the people. Yeah. And obviously he could because he was living with them. He wasn't some preacher from out of town that comes down and tells them how to live their lives. (laughs) He comes in and God is using him to suffer, as we'll see in the future. I don't want to get into... There's some really interesting things coming up. Yeah. But uh, he suffers greatly Mm -hmm. alongside of them. Yeah. Right there with them. Now, I want to also add that both of us know, and you can go back to our Daniel podcast to get this, but... Both of us realize that the real significance of Son of Man is attached to that title in Daniel 7, 13, and 14, where in a messi- clear messianic prophecy, the Messiah is called mm-hmm. one like a Son of Man. Right. That doesn't mean that there aren't some signposts here in Ezekiel where the mm-hmm. term is used, Would you say, over 90 times?
1: 93 times.
0: You know, it's what God called Ezekiel, and mm-hmm. it was maybe more... For Ezekiel than us to remind him, you're you're one of mine, yeah, and one of many. So uh, I think that'll be interesting. We'll, well, I'm sure we'll talk about that term more yeah, it'll, as we
1: go forward. It'll come up in every single episode for sure. Yeah. Okay, so as we apply Ezekiel chapters 1 through 3, the first application I don't think requires us to say much because I think it makes the point for itself, what it means to be in the presence of God. Yeah. You know, the presence of God is overwhelmingly awesome, glorious, and terrifying all at the same time. Yeah. And I don't know if we can say anything else about that, but that's application number one. Application number two comes at the end in Ezekiel's responsibility to the people of Israel or to these exiles here at Tel Aviv. outside of Babylon Ezekiel's responsibility is not to save everybody and I think that's really interesting God does not say to Ezekiel every single person that does not repent and dies I'm going to require their blood at your hand Mm -hmm. he tells him rather every person that doesn't repent that did not get warned by you Mm -hmm. their blood I will require At your hand. So Ezekiel's responsibility is not to save people. Ezekiel's responsibility is to tell them how they can save themselves, or to tell them, rather, how God can save them if they choose to be saved. Mm -hmm. And that same responsibility, I think, lies in all Christians today. So God has called us, you know, everybody knows the Great Commission backwards and forwards to teach the gospel to every living creature. Now, he calls us to teach. He calls us to admonish people, to warn people what happens if we don't follow God. But what he does not require us to do is to change a person's heart on our own. Mm-hmm. The Word yeah, does that. it's not our role. Yeah, yeah, so Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians, right? He says, uh, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase.
0: Yeah, that's right. And, you know, you're not ready to do that until you've eaten the scroll. That's right. You know, because, you know, to warn them, what if you're warning them in the wrong direction? You know, that, that could be very, very serious. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that kind of thing happens. But you notice the order here. First, God has him eat the scroll, mm-hmm. digest the word, know the word. And then, having known the word, he is supposed to go warn people of the truth. And uh, so, I, you know, that that's not an excuse for people not to share the gospel. What it is is saying, hey, you've got to, to know the Word of God. And it's one of the reasons we do this podcast is we want people to know the whole Bible, the whole 66. And uh, we're looking at a book here, Ezekiel, that a lot of people have never read. Maybe they've been Christians their whole lives, but they've never read Ezekiel. Maybe mm-hmm. thought it had no applications for them. We hope to... To change that idea, if that that is in somebody's mind,
1: I'm glad that you brought that up because in Ezekiel, actually, just as in Jeremiah, God is going to call out these people who are false prophets, who are basically bad leaders, um, those who did not stop to get the word first.
0: Oh, okay. Before
1: yeah. before they tried to lead the people. Now they did try to lead them um in certain directions and I'm, I'm trying to find it in my notes over here um there's a good quote about how they um about how they deceive the people saying peace peace when there is none very similar mm-hmm. to what we see in Jeremiah and I can't find the quote here now I guess I'll put it in the notes later oh, it's somewhere say a Isaiah in chapter, passage I know somewhere in chapter Jeremiah
0: or 6.15 or somewhere around there Jeremiah says it and I'm you know,
1: a good summary of it is here in verse, verse two and three, which is I think what you're saying here. Son of man, prophesy against the prophets of Israel who are prophesying and saying, to those who prophesy from their own hearts, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the oh, Lord okay. God, woe to the foolish prophets who follow their own spirit, and have seen nothing.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So certainly, I think that's the idea. That you're talking about, definitely a present danger in Ezekiel's time. Uh, certainly still a present danger now.
0: And Ezekiel did also say the peace, peace. Uh, Ezekiel thirteen ten. Okay, there. They have misled my people saying peace when there is no peace. Uh, so same thing. Hey, yeah. one more thing. Um, huh. I got so caught up in that I, f- I forgot what it was. But uh, <laughs> Oh, I, I want to say this. This always struck me about Ezekiel. And, and it's, I hope everybody knows where I'm coming from on this little practical application. But the, the idea is it's not easy to know and to teach the Word of God. It's not easy to be a watchman. It's not easy to be a prophet. It's not fun to be a prophet. I imagine some people start reading this book where in verse 1 of chapter 1, Ezekiel says, I saw visions of God. And they thought, how cool. Yeah. I'd like to have that. Well, finish the book and then tell yeah. me, would you like to have that experience that Ezekiel had? I doubt it. Just wait. Because, stick yeah. your, stay
1: tuned for next week. You'll change your mind.
0: Yeah, we're, we're going to see some really challenging things that Ezekiel had to face, as we saw with Jeremiah. And the one of the words that the Bible uses for a prophecy is the word burden. Which is interesting. Mm-hmm. Burden is something that you you bear the weight of. It's, it's not easy. Now, Jesus says, my yoke is easy. And I think he's talking about the weight of the burden of the gospel. It's a weight, but it can be managed. Mm-hmm. But I digress. The idea is uh, it's not easy. It's not necessarily fun. Yeah. But you should do it. And the reason we should know it's not easy and fun is so we don't back down once things get hard. You, know, you start preaching the gospel, you think you're doing it right, and people are rejecting you or not listening to you, and you think, well, maybe I'm saying the wrong thing. No, if it's in accordance with God's Word, you're saying the right thing. The problem that you have is you thought it was going to be easy and fun. Yeah. Um, yeah. But that, that's not the way it
1: is. If we learn anything from all of these major prophets, that's one of the biggest takeaways we get. Yeah. None of them had an easy go of it. Not a single one of them. Yeah. Daniel probably had it the best, but It was not great. Not great for Daniel. That night in the getting Lions. Getting thrown den. in the pit of lions, yeah, it's not necessarily. Would not qualify that as a successful night, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> um but I think we're out of time for our first are, episode yeah. on Ezekiel. Really ex- excited to get started in this book. Um if you're we usually hit our stride, I think, on a book around the third <laughs> third episode, episode is, so if yeah. you're if you feel like this is painful <laughs> hang in there hang in there we'll figure it out we'll be better next time uh if you want to find us and leave us a comment uh you can find us on the internet at the66.net 66 is a number we just got a shiny brand new website today yes when I say shiny it brand out. new it just means we changed the theme uh yeah. but it is shiny and new it looks great uh you can also reach us at dkeiser at arcoc.com or at akingsley at arcoc.com. We're on Twitter and Facebook. Just search. Look at us. Look, Yeah. Search the 66 podcast. Type in 66 as a number, and you are bound to find us. But thanks for listening, and we'll come back next week with our second episode on Ezekiel.